Here we are. Back at it, Andy. <laughs> Here we are. Back again. You know, I think this is, uh, well, before we get into the number of this episode, uh, welcome back, everybody, to Inside the Echo Chamber with your uh, lovely host, Greg Miller. And uh, my name's Andy Bertheson, live on tape here from Chicago and Toronto. It's good to be back, isn't it, Greg? Yeah, it's good to be back in Toronto. I have uh, feel like I've been say, on uh, yeah. planes, trains, and automobiles. I've been like uh, Johnny Cash, me and Johnny Cash. We've been everywhere, man, these last couple of months. <laughs> you know, funny story. I used to play in a blues band, and just for fun, we'd break out some Johnny Cash, right? He's not terribly bluesy, but, I mean, he is, but just not your standard, right? Right. Anyway, we did that song. I had to learn all the words to that thing. I can't really? remember now. It was probably... 2008, maybe, or no, 2006, I think it was. Yeah, anyway, bonjour, guten tag, good day, all of that jazz here. Uh, this, I think, is episode 10. I think last time I said it, it got re- deleted because somebody tried to call me out on the fact that they didn't think it was episode number 10, so I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to say every episode's number 10. Yeah, this place is run by a you bunch know. of accountants. I guess numbers matter. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So every episode from here on out is number 10, folks, so just get used to it. So yeah, so Greg, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about uh, I've been everywhere, and for those uh, astute listeners heard me, you know, speak in French and German, which, you know, rufen sie einen Krankenwagen schnell, you know, all that stuff. Haben sie einen guten Tag, right? Haben sie einen guten Tag. look at you. How about this? Guten Himmel, wie das du? My grandma used to say that to me all the time. Anyway, uh, yeah, we went to Europe. We... uh, Spent some time in Europe talking and meeting with some great, uh, great customers and and uh, some amazing companies, you know. And it was uh, it was a good time. I overslept once, and uh, well, it was tough, wasn't it? I mean, it was. Yeah, it was tense we had to catch a cab there. at like six thirty or something. Yeah, tense moment, six fifteen, something like that. And, well, the uh, tensest part a, is oh, it was booked under my Uber yeah. account, and you know, I've got a almost a five star rating here, and it was, uh, you know. <laughs> When you're dealing in other people's yeah, stars, well, yeah. Andy, you're dealing with other people's uh, stars. I know. get it. Could have really ruined your reputation. Could have ruined you know? my. Re- I like. If, could you imagine? Yeah. I got a four point eight. Come on. <laughs> well, listen. It's uh, it's good to be back. We're we're glad to be back chatting with everybody. We got a great podcast ahead of us here today. At least we think so. Anyway, it was really cool to talk to uh, our guest today, and and I think we learned a lot. So, um, without any further ado. Today, our guest is uh, Dave DeBronkert, who's known on the internet as uh, E-Patient Dave. Hopefully, you've heard of him. Hopefully, you've perhaps seen a, a TED Talk or two that he's done. You know, he's the author of, uh, of uh, the highly rated Let Patients Help, a patient engagement handbook, and frankly, one of the world's leading advocates for patient engagement. Back in 2007, I'm sure he'll, he'll mention it, so I'll keep it brief here, but, uh, you know, he beat uh, stage four kidney cancer back then and... and Subsequently became a blogger, health policy advisor, and frankly, an international keynote speaker. Not a bad turn of events there, really. Turning, talk about turning the car around, Dave, huh? You know? Um, <laughs> Life is unpredictable. Indeed it is, man. Indeed it is. You know, he was an accomplished speaker, actually, in his professional life before cancer, too, though. And, uh, you know, today he's really the best-known spokesman for the patient engagement movement. He attends over 600 conferences and pol- policy meetings in 19 countries, including testifying in Washington for patient access to uh, medical records under meaningful use. So he's the co-founder, chair emeritus of the Society for Participatory Medicine. I mentioned his TED Talk, Let Patients Help, which went viral and for years was in the top half of the most viewed TED Talks of all time with over half a million views. So with all of that, quite an introduction, I'd say, Dave, welcome to uh, the podcast. You're really bringing the, uh, 
the professional quotient up here. There's no doubt for Greg and I appreciate it, man. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I listen to people read that intro and I think, who does this guy think he is? But really, 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 honestly, I haven't ever gone out and promoted myself as a speaker or advisor on any of this. Sure. Uh, the, the only dynamic that's going on here is that stuff that I noticed after medicine saved my pathetic life right, 15 years ago, <laughs> right. things that I noticed, people kept saying, wait, say more about that. Right. You know, and, it, and these were smart people, smarter sure. than me. So anyway. Well, yeah. Well, Look, I mean. I don't know if we'll be sure. able to keep that, that, that streak up of you talking to smart people, but you got Andy and I today, Dave, and we're, we're super excited to have you join us. I think it's apropos. I'd, I'd love for you to share your personal experience and how, you know, getting what a difference it takes, it makes when a patient knows what's going on with their health. I, I think it's, you know, the timing couldn't mm. be better, Andy, like the CMS Century Cures yep. Act just passed. You know, Dave, I'm sure your advocacy had a part of that coming to fruition and passing for people. So maybe you can talk about your story and how important it is for people to have access to their health information. And for those of you that don't know, the CMS Act that passed earlier this month is that healthcare organizations must give patients unfettered access to their full health records in digital format. No more delays, no more fax machines. High five for that. And no more charges for printed pages. That's huge. Right. That's huge. So, Dave, maybe you can share your story and, and why this act is so important. Well, thanks. Yeah, they, the context for all this is, and it's really all the shows you've done that touch on innovation, this is, this, this is the big deal that's happening. I was a guy who 15 years ago was just wandering through life. I worked in high-tech marketing and graphic arts of all things. And the industry that used to have a lock on fonts, by the way, you know, y'all couldn't get at fonts because you weren't smart enough <laughs> to know what to do with them. It's like, you can't handle the Helvetica. Well, <laughs> now you got Helvetica. Some of us from the old days, you think that uh, the world has gone to hell. Helvetica. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I just had a routine physical. I had a sore shoulder. I got an x-ray. And I will never forget, and one of my aphorisms as a marketing guy who's a public speaker now, I like slogans, mm -hmm. okay? And one of my slogans is patient is not a third person word. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened to me is coming to your family sooner or later. Mm -hmm. And the time to improve things is not after the fire alarm rings, okay? I will never forget this phone call, 9 a.m., Doctor, I can see the Sony desk phone on my desk at work. Pick up the phone and the doctor says, Dave, your shoulder's going to be fine, but there's something in your lung that shouldn't be there and we need to find out what it is. And it turned out that what it was was a tumor of kidney cancer. I am alive partly because of complete dumb luck. I had a mm -hmm. sore shoulder that happened to reveal this tumor of kidney cancer in my lung. To make a long story short, Six and a half months later, my treatment had ended and I was all better. I had kidney cancer everywhere, literally from my skull to my thigh bone and in between. And I got a treatment that usually doesn't work and sometimes kills people. Now, the, the in my case, it did work. But an important part of how I 
helped myself survive is that my primary physician, this famous informatics doctor named Danny Sands, recommended a good community of online patients mm. that I could join. Now, notice he didn't say stay off the Internet the way some right. doctors do. <laughs> he showed me where to find the good stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's what a modern doctor will do. The, the big context for what's happening here is that in a previous generation, all useful knowledge existed in the doctor's head. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And Lord knows there's still a ton of useful knowledge in doctor's heads, but there's also useful knowledge elsewhere. In my particular case, I having learned, I learned from the patients that the treatment might kill me. So I asked my oncologist, uh, how do I prepare for this to improve my odds of surviving? And he said, that's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked us that. So then I asked the patients and I got first firsthand stories, 17 firsthand stories from people who'd been through it. And six years later, I wrote an article for the BMJ, the, the freaking British Medical Journal. I didn't ask them, could I write something for you? They came to me. They said, we think your story should be published. So this is culture change, right? Right. And so I asked my oncologist. I knew that doctors were going to be reading this. I said, what would you want other doctors to know? And he said, I'm not sure you could have tolerated enough medicine to do the job if you hadn't been so involved. Wow. Right? So when doctors say patients should sit down, shut up, and just do what they're told, I say you you have the option. I mean, some people just want to be told. I say you have the option of looking for somebody who's more modern. Anyway, having done that, I, in less than a year, I was all better. So I started blogging about how cool healthcare was. And then a year later, I discovered there was a bunch of garbage in my medical record at the hospital that had saved me. I thought, what the heck is going on here? Well, I couldn't get a straight answer out of the health information department. So I eventually blogged about it. Little did I know. This was in early 2009, and it was just when the legislation had been passed in Washington to install medical records computers right. mm-hmm. in, in hospitals. And there was a big argument going on about whether patients should be able to look at mm-hmm. what's in the computer. Right. Now, my computer, my hospital was always very open. Anyway, it just so happened that my blog post stepped in this big Washington, D.C. policy mud puddle. (laughs) And I ended up on the front page of the Boston Globe and people started inviting me to Washington to testify. I remember this one scene and then I'll hand it back to you. This big horseshoe shaped table of microphones at this policy meeting in Washington. I literally sat there at the end of it and said, I feel a little bit like Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. I don't have a chihuahua in my pocket, but I'm really not sure how I got here. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing journey. Out of, out of that, I, people, my, my life was spinning out of control. And eventually, the first time I was asked to give a speech, the uh, conference organizer, Gunther Eisenbach in Toronto, mm-hmm. said, we need to know what the title of your speech is going to be. And I'd never been asked that. Uh, And I finally, one day in August, said, I don't know, just call it. Give me my damn data because you guys can't be trusted. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can Google it. Give me my damn data is a battle cry in the patient data movement. There it is. Amazing. Well, you know, you said something earlier about, you know, how 
in the past this data was or or you know the knowledge if you will whatever that you know comprises mm-hmm. was was stuck in the head of that individual physician right yep. it was that's where it resided and i think you know, there's, you, you shared with us at one point in some of our prep, you know, talking a little bit about this stuff with you, you know, Clayton Christensen's look at, at innovation, right? And it's, mm-hmm. it's how disruption and disruptive innovation, you know, can, can transform healthcare. I mean, where do you see this going from, obviously, you know, like you said, it, it started with these individual physicians with this, you know, information that had been taught to them over many, many years and just kind of in their heads. And, you know, where does that, that kind of, you know, it, it feels like that's quite decentralized, but we know that since then it's gone the other direction and, and, you know, where does it ever come back to, to decentralization again? What's your, what are your thoughts on some of that? So it's a, it's an excellent question. And I, I, I say this as somebody, I have an innovator spirit. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in graphic arts, I lived through disruptive innovation from the losing end. There's this great visionary of the last half century named Stuart Brand. And he has this great quote, when a new technology rolls through, if you're not riding the steamroller, you're under it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, you guys have Fox now because my <laughs> side lost out, right? And right. has the world ended? I mean, it did for some of us. Aside from the way it plays out, the underlying, if you will, the plate tectonics underlying these continental shifts have to do with how vitally important resources reach the point of need. Okay? okay. 200 years ago, the best doctors didn't actually have a clue what was going on in a disease. You know, they might have some herbal remedies that they knew worked and things like that. They might mm-hmm. be very good at caring but they didn't really know what they were doing. And then about a hundred years ago, when we started to discover antibiotics and everything in the late 1800s where germ theory developed and all of that, Mm -hmm. uh, we got to the point where there started to be methods to medicine and there was no way that the ordinary person could possibly get at that. Right. If they didn't know somebody who had the training and access to the books. Mm -hmm. Now, Today, we have a ton of information we can get at, and a large proportion of it is crap. Right. Right. So, (laughs) but the, but the, no, seriously, consider this the information about how to tolerate those side effects, which I learned from patients, does not exist in the peer reviewed medical literature. Mm -hmm. It's additional supplemental knowledge of value. Mm-hmm. which I managed to get my hands on because of Danny Sands without going through the physician. Now, I haven't stopped going to doctors, but the reality today is the a number of areas where physicians have exclusive access to things right. has shifted, and the best outcomes now are enabled when physicians help their patients become less stupid, more knowledgeable, more sophisticated, so that we have a higher level working relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And that's the, uh, now, and that's what disruptive innovation is. You know, mm-hmm. people in my field in graphic arts said, when ordinary people get their hands on fonts, they will do unnatural acts. They will mix <laughs> serif and sans serif fonts. 
all right? Terrible things. And, and indeed, I, I, you know... I could maybe agree with them if it came to p- papyrus, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Comic Sans, what are we, what Comic are we talking Comic Sans, yeah. Like, <laughs> there's, there's, well, there's, some, there's some devil work inside those ones there, I would argue. <laughs> well, and the key thing is, once, once you all got your hands on France, you all of a sudden became no longer clueless. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it begs the question, Dave, if we if we put on that, like more access to information, I love your example from, you know, 200 years ago, doctors, you know, information was very isolated, right? Nobody could share what worked, what didn't work. And a lot you see now in today's medicine is, you know, especially from industry, they're pushing that AI is going to be a big help with this. Mm-hmm. The AI is going to help solve so many problems. You saw this with IBM and their launch of Watson. But you've also seen where it struggled. AI has struggled a lot. And, and I've read a lot of articles even just about that some of these AIs that are working out there and they're giving answers, we don't understand why they're coming to these answers. We're not fully understanding mm. the algorithm. So I'd be interested in your take on that because uh, you know it's being pushed from a lot of different ways that okay, there's so much information out there, it's not humanly possible for somebody to go through it all. We need an algorithm to help us narrow it down and do what's right for patients. So what are your thoughts? Uh, well, yes, indeed, indeed. So uh, for those who don't know, the word e-patient that I adopted as a nickname back in 2008 comes from this Society for Participatory Medicine, which I helped to found. And it's from a guy who died before I came along. I never knew him, a doctor named Tom Ferguson, who happened to be a friend of that guy, Stuart Brand, by the by the way, the great visionary. And he called them e-patients, empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled. It's the exact opposite of a, a patient who goes into a doctor visit and sits there and says, I don't know, you tell me what to do. Right. So if you have ever asked an intelligent question of a doctor or nurse, whatever, if you've ever been engaged If you've ever expressed a preference, which means you're empowered, then you are an e-patient. I took on the handle before I accidentally got famous just because I wanted to help spread the word. Well, in artificial intelligence, what we're hoping is there was a manifesto called the e-patient white paper that identified that back in 2006, the director of the National Library of Medicine, Donald Lindbergh, had said, if I went home like a good doctor every night and read two journal articles every night after dinner, then at the end of a year, I'd be 400 years behind. Right. <laughs> There's no way anybody. Well, so now consider this. A big part of what we're talking about here is culture change. Hmm. Every bit as big a deal as the women's movement, where it used to be when I was a kid, people thought women couldn't be chief financial officers. Right. People couldn't be executives uh, and so on and so on. The culture change that patients couldn't know anything was was destructive. And what we hope with AI is that AI would automate the processing of the information. But as we have learned over and over and over in field after field, just in the last five years, it turns out that that the robots aren't automatically smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's a real problem because right. if you crank up the robot and let it loose, 
I mean, I can imagine the first person in the early, maybe around 1900, who discovered a, a gas pedal in an early car and stepped on it. Whoa! Right. Off we go, <laughs> off the cliff. Right. And then guardrails were rails were invented. Hmm. Sounds like a good thing. So that, seriously, the problem here, I knew some people tangentially. I wasn't deeply involved in IBM Watson for Jeopardy or for healthcare, but I knew some people and they made a huge, and I don't just say in my opinion, because the way it played out showed that I think my opinion was right in this case. They made a huge mistake. They decided that the way to have a breakthrough in Watson processing the medical literature was to have it follow the instructions of human experts. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the result was that Watson grew up with blind spots. Sure, just like people. And then after five years and a couple of billion dollars, we saw articles coming out saying, wow, it turns out Watson's no better than human oncologists. <laughs> right. Well, you know, but if you but if your belief system, right, if your belief system is only men know what's the right way to approach life. Mm. I mean, in 1912, when women's suffrage was on the ballot, the flyer that went around telling people to vote no on it said that letting women vote could not possibly produce any benefit compared to the costs it would incur. Mm. And they said men are already voting. Well, why would you let the computer do something if we already have smart oncologists? Right. And cons consider this. The hospital that IBM chose to guide Watson is a famous, world-famous oncology center. Many, many lives have truly been saved there. But for whatever reason, they would not do, they didn't believe in the one treatment that could save me and did save me. Right. So if you take those same doctor's blinders, let's say Watson is rummaging through everything it found on the Internet and it says, hmm, I think this thing called high dose interleukin two looks interesting. That's what Dave had. Mm -hmm. And uh, but Watson's been programmed to think like that cancer center and reject it. Right. So my point here is you really got to take the leash off, but you well not take the leash off. You've got to take the blinders off, mm -hmm. but you still need to keep a leash mm -hmm. on the robot. Right. Right. It's a it's a powerful high speed tool, but you've got to do reality checks on it. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. No. And and you know, not shifting gears too far away from that, but if you think about how basically whether it's a a computer or whether it's a doctor there on the other side of the table from you, at the end of the day. You know, the way I like to think of it is when you're, when you're a patient in that healthcare setting, basically you're the customer, right? And you, you are the customer. And, and we all think about our experiences mm. as, as customers in that setting, right? As patients, you know, usually we, we don't rank them up there very highly with some of the better ones that we have, we've had, right? I think if we go into, a lot of us might, you know, go into an Apple store and feel like, well, that was a great, you know, customer experience or whatever, but we don't think about you know, sitting there in the hospital is usually as being a great customer experience. We've all got examples of waiting way too long and, and dealing with, you know, maybe with nurses or doctors who are short on patients uh, with a C, um, you know, and are having a tough day or whatever. You know, you, you mentioned once to us an, an experience with, a, you know, as a, a, effectively as a customer with an IT vendor who said, 
I think the words they used, they said their system's usability would become of importance to their design over my dead body, right? Quote, unquote, over my dead body. Yes. Um, you know, that doesn't seem particularly customer friendly, right? To have a, an IT vendor who, who you know, says that, you know, the usability of their system mm-hmm. is it would, would be important only over their dead body. What, what, you know, whether it's in that healthcare setting, whether it's dealing with other companies, you know, from, from your experience, how is, how important is it, right? To, and to listen to the, the customer and the, I mean, for you, it's the patient. It's a lot of what you've been talking about here, but you know, those experiences throughout your, your trials, right. Uh, in the hospital, um, you know, what were your experiences like? Were they, were they, you know, the doctors, it sounds like they were listened, they listened to you, which is good, but uh, you know, more than maybe other times, but how, the, how were those experiences for you? Well, first of all, I got, I got to say is, is, that's how important is customer experience? Is this what they call a softball question? Yeah, I think it is. I think. I'm supposed to <laughs> you can... step up and just knock it out of the park. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give it a shot. Just Dave. Call, call me healthcare's Aaron Judge. Right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> well, no, but this is this is so. First of all, I, I, I want to be really clear here, Greg. You're in Canada, right? I am. That's a fact. You are right, Northern Ontario, right? I, so I'm the, actually in Southern Ontario, but oh, you are. Yeah, oh, okay. Well, yeah. the way Andy talks about you, you'd think you're <laughs> up in Moose Jaw or yeah. something. Yeah. Well, Andy's understanding of geography is at an eighth grade <laughs> level. So. Hey, you know, Canada's Canada, oh, as far boy. as I'm concerned, eh? Anyway, there are distinctive problems in the American health system because of the fact that it is constituted. And it, I'll tell you, my advocacy came to a screeching halt. The output on my blog came to a screeching halt in 2017 when I came to this realization because I had been blogging and blogging and blogging. Why is healthcare producing such incredible scientific improvements and yet costs keep going up and satisfaction keeps going down, mm-hmm. not just for the patients, but for the workers, the doctors and nurses. Right, right. Okay. And the answer is that the American system is structured as a galaxy of individual boards of directors, mm-hmm. whether they're for profit or not. Mm-hmm. And nobody anywhere has accountability for whether anyone likes the product. Mm-hmm. Nobody, right. nobody can be fired because the workers in the system or the ultimate stakeholder, the patients, are. Now, I used to, I I went through several years after I had that disillusioning realization where I was just mad and uh, depressed and everything. But then I came to the realization, it was really when I realized that doctors were frustrated too, Mm -hmm. right? And then I realized, here we are, fellow passengers on some sort of a dysfunctional spaceship or something. And we really can work together. We can figure out how to get the job done while we hide from the dysfunctional parents. Yeah, there's institutional reasons why the the customer success or the customer experience is poor. And it's it's not at the hands of the doctors or the nurses, the ones that are giving care. Right. It's institutionally, uh, there's barriers to prevent it from happening. Well, and and we still have cases, as always happens in a mess like this, we still have cases where jerks arise on both sides of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my, one of the best patient advocate 
thinkers I've ever known after her father died in a, a hospital-acquired infection and her daughter miraculously recovered from an incredible neurological disease. She, she came out with it. Her number one advice was when you have to go in the hospital, well, two things. Number one, never go alone. Mm-hmm. Have somebody with you. And if you, are, if, if you have a choice, if you get put in a hospital where they won't let somebody stay with you around the clock, see if you can get moved. Number two, she said, find a friend. Mm. on the staff, somebody who will really be your ally. Mm -hmm. Mm. Now, in my particular case, the treatment I got was so exotic that I had to be in what they call the semi-ICU with very highly trained people. And that's one reason why this high-dose interleukin-2 isn't used very much anymore. It's just really hard to do well. And there are other treatment options. But I was, in almost every case, treated magnificently. Mm-hmm. There was this one, there's a human side of healthcare here. I'll take a moment to describe this. Here we were, the median survival for my cancer at diagnosis was 24 weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Half of people as sick as me were dead in five and a half months. Mm-hmm. And so here I am lying in this hospital bed in this semi ICU. They're pouring this treatment in through a central line into my chest. And the side effects were just horrible. So anyway, this one morning, this nurse practitioner named Gretchen just came and stood at the foot of my bed. And, you know, I, I have relatives who work in healthcare. So I know, you know, they have a life also. They get up in the morning, often when it's dark out and mm-hmm. make breakfast and they come to work and whatever else they're dealing with. She just came and stood at the foot of my bed. And it was as if there was nobody else in the world. And she just looked at me and quietly said, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. And there was was beauty and power in how she did that. And now I've lost track of what the question was. (laughs) That's all right, Dave. No, look, it's it's a a better story. The the fact is we were just talking about. Oh, customer experience. experience. Yeah. I mean, and this is it. I mean, look, you've, you've just described a, a great what, what that customer experience should have been for you as a patient, mm-hmm. right? But sometimes you have to fight for it, you know? And there was only one worker on my case mm-hmm. the whole time I was there who had no negative experience. It was a nurse who just pretty much going to stick a needle in my arms, pretty much clear. He wanted me to hold still and act like a crash test dummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I asked to have him taken off my case and they right. did. Right. Mm-hmm. Now there's, see, I want to get, get one point through here. Anytime you might think, well, I can't say that, right? right? Anytime you find yourself thinking, I can't say that, or there's nothing I can do, that's the hallmark of being disempowered. You're Mm -hmm. saying, I'm powerless. And what you want to do is rethink. You you might not want to start a dumpster fire there in the hospital bed, but you might want to express what's important to you. Right. That's amazing, Dave. I think, uh, you know, we we all think of, as you're describing all this stuff, you know, we think of stores or shops or people that sell things to us, right? That if we, you know, if we have a terrible experience with there, they get, with with that that place, they get a one a one star review on Google, and and the next person that goes to look for this, you know, search for a vendor of that type, looks on Google and sees this company with a two point two star rating, and and they keep moving on, right? They look for something else. They go find a different vendor 
that can maybe supply them with that, whether that's yeah. a restaurant or whether that's, you know, uh, some technology or whatever. But it is amazing to think that how quiet everybody becomes when they are ill and because they feel helpless because they're not well and they're reliant so heavily on, you know, these yeah. people not to just deliver, you know, a good meal or to deliver, you know, hand deliver them a, a new phone or something like that, but literally to save their life. And people are afraid to, in a sense, rock that boat. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. but to some degree, to your point, you know, it's important too. And I think the, the tips given that you mentioned earlier, for example, you know, um, you know, are, are really good. And I, I think, uh, you know, if anybody takes anything away from this, this podcast, it should be to, uh, you know, to, to have that voice, right. And, and be able to yeah. as best you can, if it's not you make like, it's like, like you're, you're like she said, you know, make sure you have a friend or, or bring somebody with yes. you, right. All of that to, nope, to, no to kidding. help you. So listen, I, I know Dave, we've, we've taken a ton of your time here. I, I had one quick question though, before. And, and I've got something you know. I want to bring oh. up, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah, no, let me, let me ask you this real quick. We're going to, you know, we, as you know, you've listened to our podcast and we always like to ask people something at least that's, uh, you know, different. So, so you're from New Hampshire, right, Dave? You're in New Hampshire. I am right? just outside Boston. Right. So tell me what the heck goes on over there in New Hampshire that, that everybody in the rest of the country should know about, apart from that primary thing you guys have uh, occasionally every, <laughs> every so many years. People know about that, but I've heard things like, You've got something called a, a maple Sunday. Is that true? I mean, where you live, I, I don't know if that <laughs> is that ex, does that exist only in the you know in the wild of wild of New Hampshire. What's going on over there? Tell us something good about New Hampshire. What should we know? Well, so New Hampshire has many many mountains, the White Mountains. Now, of course, right. it's not the Rocky Mountains, but many mountains. My daughter, I, I got to tell you, was born in 1984, but she entered my life in 1983. Okay. Because, because we got a Polaroid print of her ultrasound. Oh, very nice. Right. Yeah. So I've been, I've been involved in ultrasound for a long time. Sure. And you should see, because in those days, nobody had ultrasounds, you know, on their desk at work. <laughs> so I had this framed fuzzy thing. <laughs> very cool. Very anyway, cool. she's a hotshot award-winning high school biology teacher now. Okay. She's also a climber. Okay. So she has climbed all 48, 4,000 foot mountains in New Hampshire and fall foliage, baby. Fantastic. The foliage is still going on. It's 70 degrees here on <laughs> November 7th in New right. Hampshire. Amazing. Amazing. And that's, that's a, uh, it's like one of those things, you know, back when I lived in Japan, there's a lot of people that do these, these pilgrimages that try to go to like, you know, all 88 of a, the set of temples. Yeah. You've got all mm. the uh, the peaks in New Hampshire. Uh, your daughter's got all the peaks in New Hampshire conquered. Maybe that's the next pilgrimage up yeah. in the Northeast. So fantastic. Well, Dave, I want to give you a chance, though. You, you said you had some things. I want to make sure we always want to make sure that our guests have a chance to tell us what what's going on for them next, where people can find you, whatever you want to share, man. The floor is yours. Well, as a marketing guy, when I decided to open a website, I figured, you know, you always got problems with people translating <laughs> names. So I just said, that's it. On Twitter, I'm ePatientDave. No Perfect. punctuation, just ePatientDave. My website is ePatientDave.com. Guess how to find me on LinkedIn? I won't answer it. But <laughs> the other thing, <laughs> the, this is, I've, I've, I've got to tell you what we patient data activists have been lobbying for for 15 years now is becoming reality. Those early tests, that early testimony I did in Washington 
was over an earlier rule called meaningful use mm -hmm. that included a requirement that patients, that's us, mm -hmm. need to be able to look in there and see what has been written about us, right, in our medical record. And the new rule that went into effect on October 6th was, was part of the 21st Century Cures Act, as you mentioned, that extends it from not just looking at lab results and little things like that to everything. So it's been a 15-year journey, but good policy people in Washington have pushed that forward. And it means that you have more ability to understand and be involved with your family's health now. So really everyone in America, you can go ask, because it turns out, surprise, a lot of hospitals aren't telling people this. You have to go <laughs> ask, right? Sure. But be empowered, do it. The other thing is because I've been involved in digital technologies in my whole life, I have been really been tickled with radiology. So I got copies of my CAT scans, mm -hmm. my tumors, my MRIs, mm -hmm. and I used an open source radiology viewer, Osirix, mm -hmm. to view them and see them in 3D. And then some friends in the industry said, ha, send us that. And they 3D printed my tumors. Wow. <laughs> I, right? thought you were, I thought you were going to say you hung the pictures, printed them out, hung them on a dartboard. You know, you could use them up there, but <laughs> it's even better. That's it. Them 3D printed. So, I'm, <laughs> so, but, so now consider 10 years ago this Christmas, my daughter, the science teacher, gave me the world's worst jigsaw puzzle <laughs> for a Christmas present. Oh, man. She had 3D, really she had turned her ultrasound into a jigsaw puzzle right and that was her way of letting me know i was going to be a grandfather oh, oh fantastic wow. and awesome it, very, very it cool. was and so i i love this stuff and i know greg you can see on camera but this is i also uh, had had myself 3d printed uh <laughs> Very There's cool. a fun digital future ahead of us all. Indeed, indeed, Dave. Indeed, and look, okay, think, guys, uh, you've been great. I no, look, it's yeah, well, it's been fantastic you, meeting with you, Dave. And and uh, you know, look, everybody out there, I think uh, you know owes owes a little something to you, Dave, for uh, for you know helping drive patient data movement as far as it has, and the the uh, you know bringing these these uh, you know new regulations uh, really wouldn't have happened probably you know without a lot of your and people like you i know there's you're not the only one there's a team there's a there's a world yes. out there of people I'm, like you that are pushing for this and enabling patients and and so everybody really owes you a, a, you know a debt of gratitude for that because it will make a I'm, difference i'm the best known loudmouth but i'm only one of many <laughs> advocates right yeah. and not not right about the the loudmouth part but one of many advocates oh so, i make a point of it yeah. <laughs> Right on. Well, thank you again, Dave. We really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Uh, we look forward to it and yeah. we'd love to love to have a chan chance to uh, meet with you again and chat with you again sometime in the future. We appreciate it. Yeah, let's keep up and then see how well the predictions panned out. Absolutely. That's always fun. Call Absolutely. people back. <laughs> we'll save the receipts thank here you, for Dave. you, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> we okay. appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. We appreciate you, man. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks a million. Wow. All right. Beautiful. That was a, that was a great, great one, podcast. Andy. That was a great one. You know, yeah, definitely, definitely, 100% top 10 podcast right there. Top, top 10, top 10. 10. They all, I mean, that one I might legitimately say was top 10. I don't, you know, that was a lot of fun to talk to, uh, to talk to Dave. He's a good guy and, and a, a very interesting story. I tell you though, it did resonate, you know, the whole thing. I, it's very hard for people to do it. People go into the, into the office, doctor's office and feel very like the doctor knows everything and, you know, you can't. Right push back or ask questions even. And I think he had a 
really interesting takeaway in there from a friend of his that said, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring somebody in, bring an advocate, bring somebody right. who can be a friend in there to maybe help you. Who's not quite in the same probably emotional situation that you as a patient are in, you know, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's good advice and something that everybody frankly should think about. It's a great message. It's an excellent message. You got to be an advocate for your own healthcare and two people advocating for your healthcare is better than one. Right. Especially Andy and you're in an emotional state there. And I want to put it out here, right, right here today, Andy, will you be an advocate for my healthcare? (laughs) Ah, uh, well, if, uh, if I'm the only man left on the planet, <laughs> apart from you, I'd be happy to, Greg. Right on. Well, hey, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time around. Peace out. <laughs>